this is Just Another Thought Process. Just another what? Just Another Thought. Yeah, welcome back to another episode of Just Another Thought Process. You're here with Sebastian and Sebastian, it's just me at the moment. Um, I have been quarantined due to a dumb decision on my part, but I want to talk about that. So today, as I'm on my own, um, thought I'd just jump into a topic that I find quite A, interesting, B, I think important. So today I just wanted to sort of talk about um, financials um, and about money. Now, I don't think money is the be-all and end-all, but if you're if you have good habits, you don't get anxiety about money because you don't have to worry about where it's coming from. So I wish a lot of this was taught to me in school, um, but it wasn't. So I learned from family, friends, um, just experiences and over time. Um, but I wish that kind of started in school. Uh, so I thought I'd go through a little bit of my story and how I cultivated these habits um, over time. Uh, so we'd have to go back in the time machine and go, Go see what happened. How I came to Australia. Haha. <laughs> How you got this Aussie guy right here. Um, so my grandparents came here from Slovenia and Italy in World War II. Uh, they didn't speak any English. They didn't have jobs. They didn't have any money. So they started from the bottom. And I guess from there, they, they, they sort of, they just worked and saved a lot. And they were able to buy a house. And then they, my grandfather also invested in stocks. And so... Um, and my other grandfather built houses and then lived in them and built other houses and then sold them and lived in another one. So he, there were, there were different strategies, but they both, um, did okay. And then from that, my parents both had businesses and they also had that sort of, um, ability to save because that's what they were taught. Uh, so I thought I'd go through what happened with me. So I guess my relationship with money began from probably a young age, which in hindsight was a good habit that my parents forgave me put into me um, and then my first job at McDonald's really uh, emphasized uh, more money flowing in and and then it sort of exposed me to you know, choosing what to buy with this money that I had spent hours um, stuck behind a cash register. I actually didn't hate the job, I actually kind of liked Macca's so it wasn't that bad. I had fond memories of that place um, but that's what it exposed me to in sort of learning how what I wanted to spend money on and, and how saving could give me something, either a big experience or something that I really wanted to buy. So it was that initial sort of learning curve, which I'm sure most people get at some stage. Um, and then I had, it was at uni where I learned accounting. So I was learning about business and profit and loss and, and budgeting. Um, and that exposed me to sort of a macro level for businesses. But it wasn't as practical on everyday uh, basis that I was aware of, um, but it probably did help in places unconsciously. Um, and the other big one was living overseas. Uh, and that helped me learn where to spend my money to maximize one, my experiences and also saving money. Uh, so you become a bit, well, I, I was a bit not frugal, but I was very, um, aware of where I was putting my, my, my money. Um, and definitely makes you look at each item a bit more proactively and then making a better decision because you really want to maximize your experiences there and and spending it on something you kind of want becomes a bit of a waste in a way and also taught me to go look for those not look but 
when I came across bargains of things that A, I needed or wanted, I would make a decision on the fly right there and then. Um, yeah, so that's sort of what happened there. And then my current job sort of helped me with saving to another degree because then I was working in at accounting role and I was, I was learning about money in, a, in a, another, again, at a business level. But it was sort of flowing over because I got to learn about financial statements a bit more and then understanding the numbers whenever you look at financial statements when you look at investing um, and how the money grows over time. So there was that part of it. Um, yeah, so that's me. I got wanted to go through the, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the best habits, but it's a key habit I think everyone needs um, in this time. And hopefully we get to a point where we don't need money and I'll, I'll be extremely happy then because I could just do whatever the hell I want. But at this point in time, we live in a society where money is quite valuable um, and it does help with a lot of things and doing things that you want to do. So having a good relationship with it is probably key to functioning with the society easily. Yeah. And so really number one is learning to save money and it's, and some, some things, Really, it's learning to save, and and uh, you hear this quote where it's not how much you earn, it's how much you spend. So in that way, if you're earning a thousand dollars a week, you're able to save five hundred. So you're only you're able to hold onto five hundred dollars a week of that money every week, and so that's yours. You can do with that with what you will invest it, pay, get an experience, um, buy something you really want, um, and always having putting aside a little bit for the future, whatever that future may hold. Um, that's what really what it is and budgeting becomes a big part of your life when you start saving and, and I find it's always good to put it on paper or in a spreadsheet because you can and, and create a little profit and loss of sort of what you're what you're actually doing on every month by month or week by week and you actually start with your income and then take off all your expenses that you're aware of um, and just see see where all you're putting a lot of money, and if you're able to save a bit more, it gives you a visual, and you're able able to see it a bit better. Um, and a strategy I love from the Barefoot Investor was having different accounts for different things. So you have one for your emergency money, you have one for your savings, you have one for your investing. So it's all it's all in different places. So you don't go into other parts of your life money, different parts of your funding different funding areas um, to buy stuff you don't need or or just and, and it gives you a different it starts making you think about it in a different way um, the other thing that the barefoot investor talks about and I do recommend reading the barefoot investor another one is unshakable by Tony Robbins because they give you uh, they don't it doesn't go into too much um, in-depth information that was scary what the hell was that Sounds like something's moving. I think, it, I think it's that. Anyway, it sounds like someone's in the house. Just quick, because it's been doing that the last couple of days. I keep hearing shit, and I'm like, is someone here? It's freaking me out. Anyway, <laughs> back on to, what's the I'm talking about Unshakable. So Unshakable, Barefoot Investor, they're two great books because they don't go into too much technical terms, so they go over really uh, easy to understand. I, I loved the books because they were they, they the way they portrayed things was just easy, clear, and to the point. Um, and you didn't have to know any jargon or any technical terms to understand what the hell they're talking about. Or even, and it didn't it wasn't boring as well. Like it was it was interesting because I was able to understand and follow along um, what they were saying. And so the barefoot investor states that you should have money for an emergency. And he 
reckons reckons he believes you should put aside whatever you need to function for three months you have that aside so whether that's four thousand dollars a month thousand dollars a month five hundred dollars a month you can determine what that is but that's food um travel expenses if there's rent um any spending money you might need so having that there will just allow you to make other decisions with your money with 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 other parts of your money without having a lot of anxiety around it i think it's a great strategy to start with so saving and putting money aside for emergency are two key things that i think helps if you can do that i think that's half the battle really of of building and growing your money now you've probably heard about multiple income streams um and income streams are just different ways of of getting money really that's all it is um so most people are employed so they have a boss and they earn money by giving away their time um but there are other ways you can make money and another one is through business so owning a business um selling a product or providing a service and having a business really is probably the fastest way to build money if you have a good product or service because if it's just a you can put expenses through it and b your potential for growth is 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 very high and i think it's that's probably the the fastest way to make money out of any of the three but that being said it's probably also the hardest (laughs) oh yeah i would say it's probably the hardest way because you have to put in a lot of time some people just aren't cut out for doing business and it's a lot of stress because you have to manage people you have to manage your money very well because you're in charge of their next paycheck and you're in charge of the business buying things you're in charge of logistics you're in charge of everything working as cohesively cohesively working well together in in order to function properly and so i can understand how stressful it would be and some people don't even take a salary for the first couple years they start a business you just really just put in all your effort and all your energy into growing this into something that could potentially provide something of value to you later down the track um, but it's a lot of time a lot of investment a lot of time investment there but a, a lot of reward if you've done right um, but the main one i'm going to talk about today and a big one is investments um, and that's sort of putting money into something and hoping that it goes up in value and when i say hoping it sounds like gambling in a way and in a way it is um, but you tend to know more about businesses and, and businesses tend to you tend to know more about businesses if you do your research and you can make a, a better decision. Um, so, I mean, a good poker player probably would it'd be the same thing, really. I mean, they're making decisions based off of uh, certain of information they're able to gather in from the surrounding people and make bets accordingly. And a good investor does the same thing, but they re- their research is involved in looking through... Um, financial statements or or understanding where property markets are are down and where there's value there so that's that so investing is really about research most of the time so what does it mean to own a company because i'm going to talk about shareholder shares mostly i'm I'm, i don't have much experience with property Um, but you can invest in property through shares which is pretty cool yeah but what does it mean to own a company so when you're a shareholder, you own a portion of that company and you have rights. And those rights are 
you're entitled to the company's profit and a company will pass that back to you if they're unable to use that efficiently to build uh, the business and make it bigger and better and they'll pass it back through dividends or they'll buy back shares so if they decide that they cannot um, spend their money well and and bring value to the shareholders there and they'll look at the shares and see how much they are and if they're for example twenty dollars and they think that their shares are value at sixty dollars they think that buying those shares at twenty dollars is a bargain so they'll buy back some of those shares and because they're pulling out the amount of shares in the market they'll increase the value because how much assets they have how much money they're able to generate every year how much profit they make stays the same uh, proportional to the shares available so there's a lot of uh, variables that, that go into calculating the value of a company but anyway they're just a few ways of of how they do that so i heard this example somewhere it was i can't remember where it was but it was this kid and this mother and the kid loved nike um and the mother was all about putting aside some money and uh investing and 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 getting that future value and she sort of talked was able to put through those values and portray them well that the kid actually decided to buy um, nike because he a loved the company b he believed in the company and he loved what it stood for which is a great reason to buy a company but it also involves you should also do research and look at the financials. That's all another part of it, but it's a good start. So if you like the company, believe in what they do, it's a great place to be. And then you look at the financials to see if it's, it's uh, financially stable. But what I loved about this, and, and there's a great way to start looking at it, is that you know he he buys Nikes. His friends buys Nikes or Nikes or whatever you want to call them. But if you think about it, if you're a shareholder and your friend is buying, your best mate buys Nike every week or every month or a couple of your friends buy stuff all the time, they're actually contributing to your wealth by making that company more profit and building that company's value. And that's going to be passed back to you either building a share price or that's going to be passed back to you through dividends or share buyback. So if you think of it that way, then everyone else becomes kind of your customer. It's weird, but it's a great way to think of how being an owner can work to your advantage and that's another example would be owning Coles or Woolworths and if you go into Coles and Woolworths because you do it all the time you buy a lot of stuff there and if you look at everyone they buy a lot of stuff there and so in a way they're they're contributing to your your wealth again and it's just an interesting way of sort of understanding how the effect of customers has on you if you do own a business and I thought it was great and I, I found it a great thing so hopefully Someone else does too. Um, and I want to talk about ETFs today. So ETFs are exchange traded funds. If you've heard the term, great. If you haven't heard the term, term, I'll just try and explain it. Just got to breathe for some reason. I'm gonna, I don't know what's wrong. I'm not breathing very well. This uh, conversation was quite nerve-wracking for some reason. Anyway, back back to my... Uh, sorry for, for sidetracking there. Let's get back. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. So... What are ETFs? So exchange traded funds, which is what ETF stands for, is sort of like a investment fund that invests in a distribution of companies. So for example, the S&P 500 is an index of the top 500 uh, American companies in US. Um, and if you're invested in an ETF that focused on the S&P 500, you will earn 
whatever the total kind of average is for that, that those 500 companies. Um, and for example, the S&P 500 over the last 50 or 100 years earned between 8 and 10% annually for the last 10, 50 to 100 years, which is not a bad rate. It's much better than Levy in the bank. And another good thing about ETFs is that you don't have to be fully across all the financials of those companies um, because it's pretty much impossible to be on top of, for example, 500 different companies. And what ETFs do is when one falls off that list, they will sell those shares and buy the uh, replacement. Um, so it saves you from doing that additional effort if you don't understand um, the financials or if you're only just beginning and learning, And but it also puts you in the game and you earn uh, pretty much what the stock market is earning rather than being out of it and missing out on that potential gain. You can also invest in ETS in certain sectors. So if you love technology, you can invest just in technology. If you want to invest in emerging markets, so say um, you want to invest in Asia, there's, there's options where you can do that. I mean, it gives you a lot of options if you, if you don't like just Australian companies. And the other good thing about ETFs is that you can buy an Australian-based ASX, so you don't have to pay for your uh, overseas fees. You don't have to pay for dip to exchange your money. You're buying a ASX-listed company that is investing overseas for you, and you get those gains if there are any forex gains of, um, say, invested in U.S. companies. You're getting if the U.S. dollar is doing well, you're getting those gains. Plus, you're getting the gains of whatever the business is doing. So it's good to also be exposed to overseas stuff there. So another thing I learned. So we're going off ETFs now and I'm jumping around, but I wanted to talk about what the share market does over time. We talked about S&P 500 last 50 to 100 years on average has earned about 8 to 10%. And I just want to talk about the share market over time, what it's done. Um, and it's actually, if you look at all the companies over time, it's actually grown in value over the last 100 years or, or even since the, the dawn of time when it began. Um, and there's a lot of fear behind the stock market because there's a, there's a lot of risk involved and there can be um but and no one told me that you know if you look at it over the long term what the share market is doing or what how it's increasing value long term it doesn't seem as scary as if you look at the gfc or the dot-com bubble or there are times where there are huge lows but there are also times where there are huge gains so if you're in it for the long term, you're gonna. If if everything continues as it is, you're gonna make gains, and it's better to be in it than out of it, because at least you're gaining some of it, that additional wealth. Because it's kind of like free wealth. If you just have a thousand bucks in there and it's gaining eight percent every year, it's not a bad way to be. It's not a bad way to be at all. And the other thing that I learned that it took a long time for me to put this into practice is that if you invest, do not watch the ups and downs of what's happening to your stock or stocks because it's just going to build you build anxiety in you and it just builds fear and it's a horrible feeling and another study from a lot of these books that they talk about is that you're you get a certain amount of happiness when the stock goes up but when a stock goes down your that low is actually a bigger emotion than than that initial high that you gain from it going up a little bit or even a lot. So your the odds of you reacting when the stock market is doing badly 
is bigger than if the stock market is doing well. And and that's where a lot of, I think, mistakes happen is that in, in times of emotion, you let go of, of um, rationality and you make a bad decision in, in the wrong time. Um, so, for example, if we look at the GFC, now a lot of companies did go bankrupt, but a lot of companies actually decreased in value by a lot and it gave you the opportunity to buy at a huge discount Uh, and if you look at these drops as opportunities rather than threats you can actually take advantage of them and build wealth that way Um, so for example if you know a company like ANZ if you believe that that company is a great company and you don't think it's going to falter which banks can but on the odds they're very low but if it doesn't say you're 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 80% certain that it's a great company it'll continue for the next 50 to 100 years so your lifetime and the stock market crashes and ANZ loses 50% of its value that is kind of a discount if you look at it a certain way so you can buy that stock at 50% of its price currently and you know that this current this this um company will continue on for a long time and you know it's a good company why not buy it so that it'll it'll probably gain back its value um and it's sort of looking at at what happens in those times as a as a good situation not a bad situation because most people freak out and sell now i haven't been through one of these situations yet but i'm hoping that i'm training my brain to get ready for one because because i think that's where a lot of um money can be made if that's what your thing but anyway just understanding what it does is a great puts you ahead. So understanding the stock market, understanding what the economy is. So what is the economy? If you've done economics, you probably know a lot more than me. Uh, I've only done basic economics, but let's just go through the definition of economy. So if you Google economy, this is what will come up. The state or country in terms of production and consumption of goods and services and the supply of money. So what the hell does that mean? I have no clue. Now, <laughs> I'm just going to go through my definition of what I think the economy is. It's a really basic concept, so hopefully it makes sense. But all I view it as is, is a giant market of people buying and selling shit on credit, and that's really it. Really basic economics is demand and supply. So what's demand? Demand is the want for something, and supply is the people who are selling it. So... Um, so if you have a lot of demand and very little supply, you're going to have a product that is worth a lot of money because a lot of people want it um, and they're willing to pay more than the next person to get it. Whereas if you have an item that has a lot of supply and very little demand, you're going to have to sell this a lot lower, even lower than cost just to get rid of it because um, there's not many people who, who want it. And that's really your basic economics from my understanding. So I just want to go through a quick example in real life um, where you can see the impact of supply and demand in real life. So if you look at cryptocurrency, um, and when it started, you know, you had a little few people and people were buying it for like crumbs, like a couple cents here or dollar or something. It was really cheap. And then over time, more people got used to it and used to it and it started going in value. So you know, it's new technology and there probably is value for it. I don't know about it yet, but it'll probably come into our world later. I, I'm looking forward to when it comes in, but it'll be interesting to see how we can trade with each other. It'll be interesting to see how the banks um, 
contend or accept it or change. It'll be interesting what the world is. Anyway, I'm digressing. So cryptocurrency started off as a small thing where only a minute number of people sort of looked into it, sort of bought it. They, they, they cared about it. No one cared about it really. And then over time, it gained a little bit of traction. But then within the space of like 12 to 14 months, it started to get a lot of a lot of traction and you start hearing about cryptocurrency everywhere, 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 everywhere. It was in the media. It was in everything on, on social media. It was in the news. It was all over the place. And suddenly these prices of, of Bitcoin, of all these altcoins, they were skyrocketing. And, you know, it like Bitcoin went to like $25,000 Australian in, in, in such a small amount of time. It was ridiculous. And it was because there were so many people who wanted to buy and then the people who were holding which again probably weren't that many at the time were like they could make a lot of money of this and so not many people were selling and that is an example of, of how that demand creates a inflated <coughs> bless me uh creates an inflated price now whether or not it's worth that i can't even say but it was interesting to watch how that went up and then after what it, it got to like December, January and then it just went straight down. Now, it didn't lose all of its value, but it lost a lot of it. Probably came back to where it was actually sort of worth that, where there, the real supply and the real demand was. That's an example. Hopefully, it's a great example. I think it is. But anyway, moving on. So I wanted to talk about understanding uh, the role of compound interest. So we talked about investing, ETFs, um, but what is compound interest now i wish this was really highlighted in school because i think this is a very important thing and the earlier you learn it the earlier you can take advantage of it and the value of compound interest happens the longer you're investing so what is compound interest compound interest is the addition of interest to the principal sum of a loan or deposit or in other words interest on interest so what that means is that you're going to invest a thousand bucks and you're going to earn 10% every year. Um, so the first year you earn 10% of that $1,000. You make $100. And then that $100 goes into your investment as well. And then the next year you're earning 10% again. But you're not earning 10% on the initial $1,000. You're earning 10% on the $1,100. So $110. And this happens, compound interest is meant to happen over time, over time. So every year it's going to add more value and you're going to earn more interest. So that's where the um, power of compound interest is it's over a long term i'll go through some examples in a second but i'm going to talk about my base interest rate so i talked about the s p 500 previously i'm talking about the s p 500 again so the s p 500 is a stock market index that measures the stock performance of the 500 largest companies listed on the stock exchanges in the united states so according to historical records the average return since inception in 1926 through to 2018 is approximately 10%. And the average return since adopting 500 stocks in the index in 1957 through to 2018 is around 8%. So those are the returns you'd be getting per year for the last 50 to, no, 60 to 100 years. Nearly, nearly 100 years. So they're what you're using, which is much better than what you'd be getting at the bank. I think currently the bank... Interest rates are like 1.2, 1.5%. I don't even know, like 2%. It's really freaking low. Um, so 8% seems like a huge jump compared to, I mean, on, on $1,000, you're earning 80 bucks, not 20 bucks, which is 
a lot better, to be honest. So I wanted to go through a compound interest calculator. So if you just Google compound interest calculator, you can put all kinds of different variables in and, and look at what the impact will be over time. So just going to go through what the strategy is. So we're going to look at, at your initial deposit. You're going to deposit $500. So I think that's the minimum you can sort of invest in Australia. And then you're going to make a regular deposit of $100 a month. And the compound frequency is going to be annually. And that's going to happen over 30 years. And we're going to have an interest rate of 5%. We're going to see what happens um, at 5 8 and 10%. I think it's just a good, good way to look at it. Okay, so at the end of 30 years, that $36,000 of your investment will turn into 81000 So that's more than doubled. So your interest is 45000 It's more than doubled over 30 years which is not bad considering you're not doing anything really. You're just investing into, say, an ETF, the S&P 500, the based on the S&P 500 index, and you're earning 5%. You're unlucky. You just earned 5%, and you made a free $45,000 for doing nothing. Nothing. So let's see what happens at 8%. So 30 years, 8%. So that... $60,000 turned into, or was it $80,000? $80,000 turned into $140,000. So at 8% over 30 years, I haven't changed any of the initial deposits. I haven't changed the regular deposit. 8% that's turned into $140,000 over 30 years. And now at 10%. Now it's unlikely that you're going to get 10%, but let's just see what happens anyway. So at 10% over 30 years, you'll have about $200,000, which is more than quadrupled your money, which is pretty good, not bad. But, you know, it takes some time. So let's go back to 5% now. And let's just see what happens at 40 years. So 40 years, initial deposit $500, and you're making regular deposits of $100 per month, and your compound frequencies annually. So after 40 years, at 5%, you're going to have nearly 150000 So you've nearly tripled your money. So at 5%, let's change it to 8%. What happens? So that changed from what was it 148,000 if you get 8% on your investments over 40 years it jumps to 320,000 that was that's a big jump just by an extra 3% your money would have i think more than doubled is that right yep 150 to 300 it more than doubled if you had if you earned 8% over 40 years so it would have gone to $320,000 at I'm 27, so at 67, I would have an extra 300 grand. Not bad. So let's see what happens at 10%. That value goes to $550,000. So the different variables um, play a big part in this. And now we're going to go to the maximum number of years that you can do in this calculation, which is 50 years. Um, and this is where huge value comes into it. So at 50 years, at 5%, I haven't changed any of the initial deposits and the regular deposits. So you're going to be at $256,000 after 50 years. And then 8%, $700,000, and 10%, $1.4 million on an investment of $60,000, really. So it's $100 per month and a $500 investment straight off the bat. So that's $1.4 million on $60,000. I really don't think that is much over a long period of time. And you can muck around with these. So if you were to invest, let's go back to 5%. So 
we're at $250,000. So you're making an initial deposit of $500. Now we're going to change the regular deposits of $500 a month, and it's going to compound annually. Now this is where things change. That's about $6,000 a year you're going to invest. So that changes your 5% deposit into a $1.2 million um, return, um, not return, um, investment over 50 years. At 8%, that becomes $3.4 million. So this is where it is. The more money you put in, the more you're going to get back. But, you know, there is risk involved. But long term, if you earn 8%, you'll have about $3.4 million in 50 years. So if I did that, by the time I'm 77, I'll have $3.4 million to play with. Now, I wanted to go through what happens 10%. At 10%, I'll have $7 million. So if you invest in, in the S&P 500 with $500 initial deposit, and you make regular deposits every month of $500, and then it compounds annually, and you earn 10%, between 5 and 10%, you're going to earn anywhere between $1.2 million and $3.5 million. I hope... This is providing as much value as it did to me. I mean, it's hard not to do it without a visual, but go. I do recommend going and check this out afterwards. So I just want to look at 10% before I wrap this up. So 10% over 15 years will be 7 million. Now, what happens at 15% is what I think the fun part is. So that at 15% over 50 years, it turns into $43 million. And that's, you've invested 300 thousand dollars and it's turned into 43 44 million dollars without doing anything and this is really what superannuation is doing um but this gave me a visual of of what you can do also with spare money that you're not using or that you is just sitting there in the bank you're getting um 1.5 or 2 percent interest it's not good and this can provide extra value that you don't have to do anything all you have to do is put it aside Put an ETF and you'll gain that value over a long time. Now, I wanted to take one more example because and now this is unlikely it's going to be happening. So that's 15%, you'll be at 43 million, 44 million bucks. Now, if you're like Warren Buffett and you're able to earn 20% over 50 years, which is I wouldn't say impossible, but it's highly unlikely that it's going to happen. On that same investment of five hundred dollars initially and five hundred regular deposit every month with an annual compound frequency. Over 50 years, you're going to have $277 million if you're able to earn 20% per year. Now, it's highly unlikely, so don't go off that number, but I'm just trying to show you the power of, of compound interest and if, if you can do it efficiently and effectively. Now, more than likely, it's going to be somewhere between 5 and 10%, but that's not... I think it's a it's a risk that I'm willing to take and I think everyone should be willing to take because it's not that much over time. Even if you did it $100 over 20% of 50 years, it's still going to be $59 at 20%, $59 million. That's $60,000 turning into $59 million without doing anything. But again, highly unlikely you'll be getting 20%. So anyway, I do recommend going to Google compound interest calculator having a play around with it see what happens over time with a small amount of money a bigger amount of money so in case just do an example twenty thousand dollars you did and then you did ten thousand every year or something like that and seeing what happens in 30 years at at eight percent something like that just see see the different types of examples because really you can turn 
you can change you can create a lot of value with um compound interest and i just want people to know the value and i think that's the end of what i was going to talk about today uh i hope you enjoy this please let me know if you like the one-on-ones and i'll maybe do another one we'll see how we go uh it's definitely been an interesting experience talking to myself for 40 minutes nearly um yeah i mean I'm, I'm not crazy i'm just talking to a microphone by myself in a house all alone surrounded by nothing hearing sounds and uh yeah anyway on a lighter note uh have a lovely evening i hope you've had a wonderful morning day week and i hope the rest of the week is as wonderful as your life is well have a good night or day or morning i should have gone the other Good afternoon, good evening, or good night. Love Truman's show. Anyway, have a lovely day, and thanks for listening. Bye.